devotion. We're in Acts chapter 8. And Acts 8 is a significant chapter in that the gospel is spreading beyond uh, Jerusalem. Um, and so that first verse is important. The first verse probably belongs at the end of chapter 7. But it, it does set up for us for what happens in chapter 8. And it simply says, And Saul approved of his execution. That, of course, is Stephen. You remember that um, it was uh, Saul that uh, held on to everyone's coats while they were stoning Stephen. Stephen, of course, being the first Christian martyr uh, and one of the first uh, of the seven deacons. Um, so so what we have here then is a conflict. We, we, we have uh, not just arresting the apostles and then let them go. Now we have uh, more direct, violent persecution of the church. So once Stephen dies, then the whole church becomes a target. Because Stephen isn't an apostle. He's a deacon. Um, and, and he is public about his faith. So once that happens, uh, the Jewish system really turns against Christianity. And then we'll find that, that the Gentile uh, 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 the Gentiles will will target Christians. But as we said yesterday, the execution of Stephen, though tragic and unjust and evil and all of that is true, uh, was used by God for the glory of God in that it caused the church to uh, spread out. Um, so people return to their home, you know, their hometowns, or they, they seek refuge uh, elsewhere. And where the Christians go, they take the gospel with them. How vitally important is that? Just as that point there is applicable, isn't it? Wherever the Christians went, they took their faith with them. And so, so rather than all the Christians being found in a single location, the city of Jerusalem, now they're everywhere. Families of believers and individual believers themselves would go and they would uh, share their faith and build relationships. And, and this is how the church grows. And this is an important point for us to make. The church will not grow from the top down. The President of the United States, the governor of your state, whatever it might be, will, will not bring the kingdom of God to the earth. Rather, it is in day-to-day -day relationships that we have and the influence we yield in those relationships, the character and the integrity and the holiness we live by, that is the key by which the church expands. But when the church allows itself to have a uh, reputation uh, that is driven by politics or, or some other stuff, then we really do harm to the church. But if we, if we live consistently with our faith and are vocal about our faith, then we can see uh, uh, the gospel spread despite the cultural challenges and context by which it, it spreads. But with that said, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. The apostles stay in Jerusalem, though eventually spread out. Paul will play an important role of that. But you, you see already that, that Acts 8 plays a role in the outline of Acts. You remember, chapter 1, verse 8 was um, the gospel was spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. What do we see here? Now, because of the persecution or the execution of Stephen, now the gospel is going to spread, and in chapter 8, the emphasis is going to be in Judea and Samaria. Right? And, and, and that is what, what we have here. Um, verse 2 Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we see a much more direct persecution of the church, led by Saul, who will 
uh, surprise, surprise, spoiler alert, become um, perhaps the most influential apostle, at least in terms of New Testament theology, is the most influential apostle. Um, so what, what an incredible story of grace he is. Well, we begin in Samaria. Philip preaches in Samaria. Verse 4 now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, uh, and there he performed wonders. Philip being one of the deacons. So remember, the apostles in Jerusalem, it's the deacons who are doing this, performs a few, few miracles. Um, but while he was there, he meets a man named Simon the Magician. This starts in verse 9. Now, um, Simon the Magician is... Um, it's, it's a warning to the reader that there will be some who will attach themselves to the Christian movement for their own benefit. Now, look, I grew up in the Bible Belt. This is obvious to me uh, that when you live in a society that is predominantly Christianized, I wouldn't say Christian, but Christianized, and by that, it's, it's the, the, the system, the morals, and the influences, the way people think is heavily influenced by Christianity, whether or not they're a Christian, right? So, so you can have a pagan who works hard and, and is faithful to his wife. Well, that is inconsistent with evolution. It is consistent with Christianity, right? Um, and, and so I grew up in a, in a Bible Belt rural community, right? We get this. And one of the things you'll find is if you want to get far in that community, uh, at least in, in uh, the 20th century, you needed to be attached to a local church. And you need to be known in that church, involved in that church, right? Uh, because in that church are your voters, for example, uh, your supporters, you know, and, and so if you study the 20th century and the 19th century stuff, politicians and lawyers and local uh, influentials uh, would, would be uh, found in the local church. And so uh, there was a benefit from being attached to the, the Christian movement. Now, what I'm not saying is there wasn't genuine faith being exercised uh, throughout the community. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is there is a temptation from, for some to... to uh, to seek personal benefit. Now, I think the same thing is happening now with secular religion. A lot of people, um, in fear of being perceived as small-minded, intolerant, bigoted, you know all the terms, will attach themselves to wokeism. So long as they, 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 they say the right words, that's a catechism, so long as they uh, do the right things, that's sanctification, um, then uh, they will benefit from it because they'll get good media press or, or, or be accepted in the community or whatever it, it might be. This is what, what, what religion does. And Simon the Magician um, sees the clear movement of God in that these deacons and apostles can perform these, these signs and wonders. And he's thinking as a magician, if I had that power, then I could really benefit from it. So his story starts in verse 9. Um, Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Right? And, and more details are given. You can read them on your own. Verse 13, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. It's fascinating here. You have someone who has been baptized by the early church, and yet his story takes a, a tragic turn. Um, 
they uh, we then see that Peter and John come when, when, when they hear of uh, the new believers in Samaria. They lay their hands on those believers. They receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, that is significant because now what you have is a clear manifestation of the Holy Spirit in Samaria. Now, that matters uh, uh, for one of the reasons because of my thesis regarding tongues. You remember that Acts 1a is the outline of, of, of the books, the Gospel of Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and then the rest of the Gentile world. The tongue story essentially follows the same pattern we saw in Jerusalem in Acts 2. It's hinted at here in Acts 8, and then it will show up again in Judea and then among the Gentiles. So, so my, my uh, thesis is, is that for Luke's theology of glossa, tongues, it follows Acts 1-8. Um, but but the, the, it's only hinted at, at, at here. Well, to read the rest of Simon the, the Magician, he is rebuked. He is told to repent for his wickedness because he wants the power for his own benefit. Now, this is a baptized believer. Um, now, let me just, just uh, add there that he is baptized as a believer, not baptized for faith. Um, so, so it's not works righteousness. Uh, and you don't have babies being baptized here. Again, I'm, I'm Southern Baptist, so I'm obviously biased. Uh, in fact, in verse 24, Simon says, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So, so, so Simon the Magician is, is, is a, it's a tough narrative to really look at. On the one hand, there seems to be some conversion. He really believes. But at the same time, he, he, is, he is struggling like Ananias and Sapphira that, that wants to benefit from belief. And there's a real mystery of how to understand all of this, but um, a cautionary tale, like Ananias and Sapphira, it is nonetheless. So really, I think, I think that's a good parallel. You have Ananias and Sapphira in Jerusalem. You have Simon the Magician in Samaria. Um, well, finally, we get Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip will eventually just kind of move on from, from the narrative. He's, 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 he shows up, plays an important role in Samaria, and then he's not really mentioned again, um, at least clearly. Uh, well, uh, he is told by God to, to, to go to a certain place. He's going to go down uh, south of Jerusalem. Um, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to, to worship. Now, um, um, there's, there's a lot there. Uh, who this person is, who this uh, Candace, queen of the Ethiopians is, and it's, it's, it's not really worth worth exploring at this point. Eunuchs were, were common. Uh, there were eunuchs in the story of, of Esther, um, and, and they were uh, dedicated to, um, dedicated to uh, the, the political system there and to the person they were serving. Uh, Jesus mentions eunuchs, eunuchs by choice, um, and, and eunuchs who were born eunuchs. Uh, and he, it's really a helpful passage, probably the most helpful passage in terms of our understanding of the transgender movement here. I've, I've preached a whole sermon on it, so I'm sure you can find it somewhere online. Anyways, so the man is eunuch. Uh, he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet of Isaiah. So, so, so he's, he's sensitive to Judaism, even though he's, he's Ethiopian. So he would be a, a proselytite or a God-fearer. Uh, well, it can be God-fearer because he can't be circumcised. So verse 30, uh, Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he says, how can I unless someone guides me? Now, this is me, a preacher, um, talking about the importance of preachers. So, obviously, I'm biased. Um, but what Philip does here 
is, 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 is he doesn't preach. What he does is, is he disciples. This is discipleship that leads to evangelism. Uh, he, he builds a relationship. He, he, he shares with the Ethiopian, uh, expresses love and care, and he teaches. And look, this is a deacon doing this, not an apostle, not a pastor. This is, this is a deacon doing this. And this is why we have uh, Sunday school teachers and pastors and everything else, to, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to quote Paul in, in Ephesians 4.12. But here you have a local church member called by God to simply expound upon the scriptures, pointing the way to Jesus. He is not seminary educated, and he, he, I would say he doesn't know Hebrew and Greek, but he speaks Greek. But, but you, you see the point. He's, he's not seminary educated. He, he knows Jesus, and he knows the Jesus of Scripture, so much so that he can expound upon the text of Scripture to point this eunuch to, to Jesus. Now look, that is the, the, the very limit expectation of every Christian who calls upon the name of the Lord to be saved, that you would be a student of Scripture so that you may expound upon Scripture for the benefit and salvation of others. Is, is that too elementary? But apparently it is. Too many Christians can't find Genesis right now. I've done the experiments. It is incredible how biblically ignorant we are that we expect that it is for educated people to tell me what, what the Bible says rather than reading the Bible for ourselves. When William Tyndale translated the Bible, he was asked why, which was illegal at the time. He translated into English. Much of your King James Bible is based off of Tyndale's translation. In fact, you're reading as much Tyndale as you are the King James translators. But when he was asked, he says, my goal is that the plowboy will know as much of Scripture as the, uh, as the educated priest. And, and th that's awesome. The problem is, is too many of us plowboys are unwilling to read Scripture. Uh, and so, so here this deacon expounds upon Scripture. Now, it just so happens by the work of the Spirit and the providence of God, he's reading Isaiah 53. Um, and he quotes part of that, uh, that Jesus, like, like a sheep, is led to the slaughter. Right? It's a prophecy. It's a messianic prophecy about the death and resurrection of, of Messiah. So verse 34, eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? This is a, a common challenge with, with interpreting Isaiah 53, as well as other passages. Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with his, this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. What did he do here? He's, notice that, that he, he's saying that all of scripture has at its center Christ, or as Martin Luther said, uh, the Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. But you'll notice here, there is no New Testament. Philip isn't quoting the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew hasn't gotten around to even think about writing one. Right? We're in the early weeks and months of the church. The Gospels won't come for about another 20 to 30 years. Uh, the Gospel of John coming at the end of the first century is about 50 to 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, that's impressive enough for ancient literature, but, but they're not reading that here. The book of James and Galatians, probably the two earliest New Testament books, they haven't been written yet because Paul isn't even saved yet. But what the early church does have, and they were content with, was the Old Testament. Because when they read the Old Testament, they saw Christ. In fact, Jesus, after his resurrection with the walk Emmaus, um, um, uh, what does he do? Is he expounds upon the Old Testament, pointing to what Christ did upon the cross of resurrection. Verse 36, And they were going along the road. They came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is uh, water. What prevents me from being baptized? And so 
they stop the chariot and they dunk him right there. It's amazing, isn't it? This is a deacon performing this. And you'll notice, let me be a Southern Baptist. I, I, I wear my cards on my sleeve or whatever the, the term is supposed to be. Um, he's baptized as a believer, not as an infant. And his, his, the act of baptism is the first act of faith. It's the first act of obedience. He's baptized not for salvation, but because of salvation. And I would add, he's fully immersed. Because uh, that's what the word baptizo in the Greek means. Um, means immersion. It can even mean drown in some settings. So, so what you have here is is the uh, uh, Philip uh, reaching all kinds of people, and he's just in, he's, he's a deacon. He, he his ordination was to serve tables, but while he's serving tables at the local church, he's telling people about Jesus. It doesn't get more simple than that, does it? Hope to see you guys here tomorrow.